place it all on Donald Trump's shoulders. It's easy for us to place Pittsburgh on his shoulders. It's easy for me to place Charlottesville on his shoulders. It's easy for us to place El Paso on his shoulders. This is us. And if we're gonna get past this, we can't blame it on him. He's a manifestation of the ugliness that's in us. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm so glad you have joined us. You were listening there to the voice of Eddie Glaude Jr. speaking last year on MSNBC in a really impassioned plea to Americans to look inward, both on ourselves as individuals and inward to our nation's core values and institutions. It's a speech that has such powerful resonance a year later that the clip recently started circulating again in the wake of the presidential election. Glaude is the chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University, and he's the author of several books on race and politics and religion. He's one of the most powerful voices today on subjects of structural racism and inequality in America. And his new book, Begin Again, looks at the life and writings of James Baldwin, especially Baldwin's later writings, and reflects on the urgent lessons they contain for America in 2020. I am really excited today to spend the full hour talking with Dr. Glaude about his book, This Moment in History, and his vision of hope for racial justice in tomorrow's America. Dr. Eddie Glaude Jr., welcome to Detroit Today. Oh, it is my pleasure. I hope you're doing well. Yes, I am. I'm hanging in there like everybody else, right? <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so I want to start by listening to just a little bit more of that clip from uh, MSNBC. I, I think it might be hard for some people especially white people, to understand what you mean when you are talking uh, in this clip that we're going to hear about setting them free from uh, being white. But let's take a listen really quickly. I've had the privilege of growing up in a tradition that didn't believe in the myths and the legends because we had to bear the brunt of them. Either we're going to change, Nicole, or we're going to do this again and again, and babies are going to have to grow up without mothers and fathers, uncles and aunts, friends, while we're trying to convince white folk to finally leave behind a history that will maybe, maybe, or embrace a history that might set them free from being white. Finally. Finally. I mean, it's such powerful language and, and phrasing. Set white people free, white America free, from being white. Exp- Explain what that means when you say that. Well, you know, one of the revolutionary uh, uh, effects of James Baldwin's work is that he flips the script. Mm -hmm. That the problem isn't us. That America's original sin isn't slavery or it isn't uh, the genocide of native peoples. America's original, original sin is the price of the ticket to become American, and that is to become white. So whiteness is this idea that, or it contains this idea that, that some lives ought to be valued more than others. And it's precisely that belief that leads to the devaluing and disregard of other lives. And so when you tell yourself a story uh, that solidifies this understanding, this self-understanding, 
it leads you to, to deny the humanity right in front of you. And in some ways, I think, um, uh, it sets the stage for you to become monstrous. So Baldwin is, is constantly trying to get white America to understand that the problem doesn't lie outside of them. It lies with this notion of whiteness that is so central to their self-identity. Their self and that's what I was trying to channel. I had actually just finished writing a passage for Begin Again when I was on when I was on Nicole's show yeah. and I was actually channeling Baldwin in that moment. Yeah. Uh, so walking away from being white, what what would that look like? I, I would love for you to talk to our listeners about the practical implication of of a phrase like that. How how do you do that? Well, you know, it's it's this ongoing work of of interrogating the way in which whiteness comes to us as natural as language, you know? Hmm. I'm thinking about this moment in Wendell Berry's wonderful little book, The Hidden Wound. Mm -hmm. And Wendell Berry, who's this Kentucky-born writer who grapples with his own racism, is trying to suggest that as a person who has grown up uh, in the South, who who has an, absorbed in a, and 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 taken in this language of racism that comes, na as I said, as natural to him as language, that he has to engage in this ongoing work of deconstructing it. Right. So it's a matter of understanding the way in which what I call the value gap distributes advantage and disadvantage and trying your best to be aware of it and to fight against it, knowing that you're going to falter. So, you know, Baldwin makes this distinction, Stephen, between people who happen to be white and white people. And I happen to love a lot of people who happen to be white. And those are those folks who are engaged in this ongoing work of deconstructing a society predicated on the value gap. White people are those folks who are okay with it. They're fine with it, you know, accruing the benefits of a society predicated on the notion that white people ought to be valued more than others. So how does one do it? In short, one just has to be conscious and deliberate, engaging in, in, in the hard work of trying to imagine oneself in fuller and more expansive terms. Mm. You know, I feel like one of the difficulties in, in that particular struggle is that for many white people, uh, there is no, there's no real awareness of the advantage of the privilege that they have, that, that despite the overwhelming evidence that their lives are valued more than others, that, uh, that other people struggle with built-in disadvantages that they have never faced, they don't really see those things. Uh, they, they can't see us. Uh, and so it becomes it becomes a matter of how you even how you even bring awareness to the situation, uh, yeah. in, in, as well as intention. Yeah, I mean it's that's a that's a generous read in the sense that they don't <laughs> that they don't see us. It's a kind of willful ignorance. Uh, what what some philosophers call epistemic ignorance, you know. You know, and I'm sorry to be quoting Baldwin so much, but, you know, Baldwin talks about this in The Fire Next Time, yes, right? In this yes. letter to his nephew, where he's trying to address very clearly that, you know, as he says, and I know which is much worse, and this is the crime of which I accuse my country and my countrymen and for which, and for which neither I nor time nor history will ever forgive them, that they have destroyed and are destroying hundreds of thousands of lives and do not know it and do not want to know it. Right. 
And then he says, but it is not permissible that authors of devastation should also be innocent. It is the innocence which constitutes the crime. And then later, just that's in 63, in 1972, he writes in No Name in the Street, quote, white America remains unable to believe that black America's grievances are real. They are unable to believe this because they cannot face what this fact says about themselves and their country. And the, the effect of this massive and hostile incomprehension is to increase the danger in which all black people live, especially the young. So part of what we have to do is say they, it's not that they cannot see. They won't see. That they refu- exactly. Exactly. And part of our work is to bear witness, is to press the case, is to is to relentlessly attack this willful ignorance. Right. Um, in, in a way that that can can. Ex- expose and disclose the lie at the heart of it all, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. So so before we even go further, I, I want to remind our audience that the clip we listened to from you being on MSNBC was actually from way before the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and way before the civil unrest that we've experienced this year in reaction to that before the pandemic that has absolutely ravaged black and brown communities. Uh, and of course, you were saying it before this crazy election that uh, that we are still living through several weeks after we all uh, cast our, our, our ballots. And I, I think that's important to note because uh, because. In some ways, people I think want to want to gravitate toward the idea that this is uh, episodic. That, in other words, that that the things that we're seeing unfold this year are about the things that are happening to us now, and that they are stripped of uh, context or or attachment to history or. Or, or foundation, uh, and and that's just—I mean, it's not true. Uh, but it's one of the hardest things I think to get people to acknowledge uh, and react to. It, it is part of the problem of seeing, right? Um, that well, these are things that that just are happening now, and uh, we don't have this kind of obligation to deal with and talk about and identify them uh, consistently across time. Yeah, you know, what was so, what's so amazing about the kind of recirculation of that clip is that, you know, that, that, those comments were in response to what happened on August 3rd of 2019, and mm-hmm. that is the El Paso shooting. Right. And I was on the panel with a colleague who was from El Paso. And every time he talked, Stephen, he, he could barely hold himself together. He was on the verge of tears. And, and I was just getting angrier and angrier and angrier because, you know, the, the, the constant pearl clutching, the constant question, is this America? Mm. Is this who we are? Um, and, you know, every generation, you know, in several moments within one generation, uh, people are asking that damn question. And it front, while we have to bear the brunt, right, of, 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 of their willful denial. And so part of our work is to not allow Americans to be ahistorical, not allow us to be 
to decontextualize the moment, um, to see it as a one-off instance, but really to kind of map uh, in some ways as best we can uh, the context that produces this. I mean, your commentary recently about what uh, uh, is happening in Wayne County, for example, you, you contextualize it, not only in terms of the broad history, but in relation to your father's experience, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm sitting here trying to figure out, I was sitting there trying to figure out, you know, that I said two-year-old, it was a two-month-old baby killed. You know, a two-month-old baby, her parents were killed because they were trying to protect her. You know, for what? Yeah. Right? So these people can be white? So these people can protect this idea that this nation is a white nation in the vein of old Europe. How long must we go through this, continue to go through this? So um, I, I hope that's a response. I was just trying to contextualize what that what I was responding to in August of 2019 and what we're responding to now in November of 2020 and how that same video footage can still have resonance across those t- across these two moments. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, you, you you posed that question or brought that question up that we hear all the time is this America that we hear people asking after, you know, horrible things happen that that uh, people say they can't believe what happened in a nation as as wealthy and and uh, as as privileged as as this. And I mean, I I think some of what that is about is, and maybe this is naive, but but uh, I, I would prefer to call it maybe optimistic. I, I, some of that is about aspiration, right? Some of that is mm. about this is supposed to be the, the the greatest country on on the planet. This is supposed to be a place where everybody has equal opportunity. And there is kind of a natural tension, I think, between that ideal and the practice of it uh, over the last 240-some years that uh, that for some people is maybe too much to countenance. In other words, it's just too difficult for them to even fathom that we haven't achieved uh, all of those things. And so they say things like, is this, is this America? How can this how can this be America? And I think the opportunity perhaps there is to is to jump on that that very sentiment and say, yeah, this is this is the country that you created, that you benefit from in so many ways. Uh, but yeah, we all do want to create something much better. It's not that uh, it's not yeah. the criticism of. Uh, of what happens here is is saying we don't want it. It's that it's just been a it's been a lie we've been told for so long. Yeah, I mean, I think you're 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 hitting an important point here, and that is the efficiency of American exceptionalism as an ideology. Mm-hmm. Right? It it allows us to to contain our ugliness, right? To always narrate it in terms of the inevitable progress toward a more perfect union. So the American ideology consistently allows us to let ourselves off the hook, right? So the question is a perennial question of, is this America? Because of that aspirational claim that is built into the very self-understanding of who we are as Americans, right? So if we're already the shining city on the hill, as Reagan 
you know, added the adjective to John Winthrop's phrase, <laughs> America is the city on the hill coming mm-hmm. from Augusta, right? If we're already the shining city on the hill, if we're the redeemer nation, an example of democracy achieved, then then the idea of a more perfect union involves, right, in some ways, our march, our ongoing march to to perfection, right? We might never achieve it, but it's it's destined, right? And so in that sense, America's special charge protects us from the actual evidence to suggest otherwise. And so part of what we have to do is deconstruct this exceptionalism. You know, again, you know, on page 101 in The Fire Next Time, Baldwin hits this dead on the head, and I was channeling it in the in the in the clip you you passed it. I come out of a tradition that never had to believe in the myths, the beliefs, believe in the myths and the legends because mm-hmm. we had to bear the burden of them. Right? Baldwin writes, the American Negro has the great advantage of having never believed that collection of myths to which white Americans cling. That their ancestors were all freedom-loving heroes, that they were born in the greatest country the world has ever seen, or that Americans are invincible in battle and wise in peace, that Americans have always dealt honorably with Mexicans and Indians and all other neighbors or inferiors, that American men are the world's most direct and virile, that American women are pure. Negroes know far more about white America than that. Right. And so so the idea and this is why, you know, I, I'm talking too much, but this is the I, you know, no, no, no. That's why, the whole point. <laughs> no, but Stephen, you know that re- this is the reason why, you know, when Fourth of July was first when, when the country first started celebrating Fourth of July as Independence Day, because it used to be the day in which the American Colonization Society raised money to in order to ship free black folk out of the country. When we showed up at these early Fourth of July celebrations, we would literally be attacked. Yes. Because our bodies represented the contradiction of what was being celebrated. So you're right to say it's aspirational. And you're right to say that we must relentlessly deconstruct it in the name of a different kind of aspiration. Right? The aspiration to be together differently, not predicated upon this idea of America as somehow a shining city on the hill. No, 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 no. We need to imagine America differently, it seems to me. Yeah. Uh, I want to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this really delightful conversation with Eddie Glaude, Jr., chair of the Department of African-American Studies at Princeton University. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what you're thinking about in this incredible moment in America right now. All of the things that have happened this year, all of the things that have happened just in the last 72 hours uh, that remind us of the work that still needs to be done to make this the country that we all want it to be, that some people think it is, but that it has always fallen quite short of. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. News, music, culture, and community. Every day on 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host. And as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. My guest this hour 
is Eddie Gloud Jr. He is the chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University, author of several books, including the new book, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its urgent lessons for our own. And uh, we are talking about what is going on in our nation right now, the incredible conversations that we're having about race and racism and systemic inequality, uh, the incredible movement that has grown out of the protests from Black Lives Matter. Uh, We're talking about the presidential election and the president of the United States, Donald Trump, what he symbolizes uh, in that narrative, in that dialogue and struggle. Uh, And we want to hear from you. What do you make of all of these things that we've experienced just in the last uh, eight or nine months in this country. What do you make of the opportunity for all of those things to inspire real change, real progress uh, in our our nation? Uh, as always, uh, if you want to join the conversation, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation uh, Dr. Glad, I want to I want to talk I want to start with uh, a Twitter comment uh, that we have here and get you to respond to it. Uh, Rob says that uh, Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living, but the people you want to reach with Baldwin's message are the least likely to examine their own biases, thoughts, feelings, and motivations. He says that was what was so frustrating growing up around people like that in, in his youth. So I, I, I want to I ask you about this moment in American history this year and what we've seen from Black Lives Matter, which has now become much bigger than a protest. I mean, it really is a movement. And this word that people keep using about what's going on, reckoning, which suggests progress. It suggests an effort, a real effort, to examine some of the things that that don't match up with uh, the the promise of of America and to fix them, uh, but as Rob points out, the people we need to make change aren't really tuned into this conversation. I mean, they're off doing other things, and as we talked about in the first segment, uh, they are blind and in some cases willfully blind to what. To what needs addressing? So, 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 how do you how do you use a word like reckoning, e- even in this moment? How do you make that word uh, into action and into change when you have the people who are responsible for that change, the people who need to make the change, not really engaged uh, engaged in the work? Well, I mean, I think. I mean, it's, it's a difficult task, obviously, but it seems to me that uh, we have to be careful uh, and, and say something like this. That is to say, not, not all people are willfully ignorant. I mean, I made the distinction between those who happen to be white and those who are. Mm-hmm. And I said, I love some people who happen to be white. I love them deeply. Um, and so part of what I want us to do is to, is, is to take... Uh, uh, um, take in what we saw during the protests, that it wasn't just us out there, uh, that there were a wide range of folk. And, and they might have been out there for a variety of reasons, but we saw 
a cross-section of America out in the streets risking their lives uh, to protest what happened to George Floyd and what happened to Jacob Blake and, and what happened to Walter Wallace. And we can go on, Breonna Taylor, we can go on and on and on. So, there, so when we talk about a reckoning, it, it doesn't require that the entire nation is, you know, experiences it individually, right? The reckoning confronts the nation with the reality of its contradiction, hmm. like we're all experiencing the contradictions of neoliberalism right now, like we're all experiencing the devastation of COVID, even though individually most, a lot of us don't have it, but we're feeling it, right? And so the reckoning is not uh, something that each individual American should experience in her own, in her own way, right? But it's, it's this general kind of experience. And, hmm. and what I'm trying to suggest here let me tell you what I have in mind, Stephen. I have in mind what SNCC was trying to do back in the day. Mm -hmm. So if the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, they're organizing in the Delta of Mississippi, and you know they get two, three farmers, two, two or three sharecroppers to agree with them to do what they're doing, they could shake, that, they could shake the world of that county. They didn't have to get all, everybody. They don't have to get everybody, right. Right, you see what I mean? So if we, if we the relative few of us, can begin to engage in this fundamental assessment and, uh, of who we take ourselves to be and, and imagine being together differently and then bring pressure to bear. We can change this society, I believe. I have to hope that. Otherwise, I'll drink too much Irish whiskey. <laughs> right. What, what else is there if you have no hope at all? <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Of course, we've got a lot of people who are queued up to uh, chime in on this conversation. I'll be, I'll be shorter with my answer. No, no, no. Uh, you are here to talk <laughs> about these things. That's why we have you here. Uh, let's start with Maggie in Ann Arbor. Maggie, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for taking the call. Sure. Really, uh, obviously, worthwhile conversation. A couple of things I wanted to bring up and wonder if you guys can comment on. Two things kind of happening at once. Um, so thinking about that willful ignorance and like you can't see what you can't see kind of thing. I was thinking about my generation, you know, born in 1980, 81. And many of us were brought up, we're told that America is better than a racist history. And it, it seems like, it feels like that if we believe this, um, that the adults teaching us must have believed that America will be better if us kids have a different mindset, but mm. they didn't tear down the systemic problems that uphold racism in America. Mm. And yet, at the same time, apparently, white supremacist culture was changing their game to be even more insidious and infiltrate the power structures more than we knew. And it, it really seems like this, I mean, I guess we have to sometimes try to comprehend things in a way that we see in pop culture, but this science fiction where there's a reality that people were programmed not to see, hmm. and we have to stop being willfully ignorant. Um, and so this kind of conversation, it's just so critical. And as soon as you see what is real... <laughs> You can't unsee it anymore. So, so Maggie, before I get Dr. Glaude to, to respond, give me a sense of, for you, what it was that, that made you see. Uh, what what, what uh, sort of made you understand that uh, the world that, that we live in, the country that we live in, 
doesn't quite match with uh, the narrative that, that, for instance, you were told about uh, as a child? I think it was the like the reality that I was kind of socialized to see as this like bright, shining, peaceful world was constantly countered. And so, you know, I would see on the news or growing up in Metro Detroit and Melvindale, um, mm-hmm. you would see the, the conflicting reality. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's been kind of building over the course of my life, too, that my parents didn't necessarily... Um, protect me, for lack of a better word, from those things that countered that reality of like a desire for a peaceful world and seeing and hearing what people were saying and seeing and hearing those um, historical programs that maybe were on Detroit Public Radio or something as a kid, um, going to see the Heidelberg Project in like 88 Mm -hmm. and talking about how the city was going to tear it down as blight and um, just that the story wasn't matching up hmm. with what was what was seeing what I was seeing, mm. but even still, you know, it takes like to now when I'm about to turn forty, where it really hits me that just because I want it to be true, that people aren't awful. <laughs> A lot of people have been socialized to be awful, hmm. and we have wow. to. We have to be better, not just think we're better. Yeah. And I don't mean better than other people. I mean. Right. better than history, yeah. better than hatefulness. Maggie, I really, really appreciate the call uh, and and the insights there. Mm-hmm. Dr. Glaude, uh, I'd love to hear you respond. Uh, Maggie, I, you know, we have, some people are socialized to be awful. I mean, that's a wonderful formulation. <laughs> yeah. It's so rich. Thank you. Um, you know, I think she, she, she hits it right on the head. I mean, she was born, she said 1980. First of all, I'm old, but <laughs> but she said she was born in 1980. And 1980 is the is is a moment in which the nation closed its door, closed the door on any possibility of fundamental change when it came to the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. the Black Freedom Movement of the mid 20th century. 1980 is 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 the year Ronald Reagan is elected. Yes, and Ronald Reagan was elected to dismantle the Great Society. He was elected to dismantle the New Deal, and in some ways he in my view, was a predecessor for Ronald Reagan. I mean, for um, Donald Trump, uh, B-list Hollywood actor, kind of, and, you know, sets the stage for the reality actor, you Mm -hmm. know, the reality show actor to come. He's an American fantasy who also said, make America great again. And he appealed to all of these under, you know, he appealed to the underbelly of American life. So part of what, how I'm answering Maggie is that during that period when she came of age, is a period in which a particular ideology was taking root in the country that had everything to do with welfare queens, that had everything to do with, you know, um, the war on drugs, that had everything to do with uh, kind of the dismantling of, of the social safety net, the shredding of the social safety net, right? It produced the kinds of people that we're currently living with today. I mean, it's not solely the responsible for it, but you know, the age of Reagan produced these selfish people who don't want to wear masks. Yeah, it did. In a certain sort. I mean, it's clear. And so to my mind, what we have to do is um, 
No, I, I think Maggie hit it on the head. We just have to be better. And in order to do that, we have to tell the truth about what we've done. Yeah. You know, drawing, drawing that line from Reagan to Trump, uh, which I've done a couple times over the last four years uh, to friends of mine who who support uh, the current president um, and, and who, who love Ronald Reagan. I mean, it, it, there's nothing that makes them angrier. Uh, <laughs> they, they, they don't talk about not seeing. Um, the, the Republicans, uh, you know, died in the wool, sort of mainstream Republicans don't don't see that at all. And I, I don't I don't understand how it's even complicated. Uh, the, the, Donald Trump is more crass about the way he he says and does things he leans far more um overtly into uh you know racist narratives and and ideology but you know i always say uh, ronald reagan announced his candidacy uh in the shoba county right i mean there there could not have been a more uh, a more overt gesture toward racist history uh, in in this in this country than that, and I mean I think that's the, you talk about truth telling, uh, you know, and not making it just about Donald Trump and what he's doing and and saying right now. You've got to do that. You've got to put him in the context of Republican ideology and and policy making. Over the last forty years now, um, I mean, yeah, go ahead. That is such an important point because what what we're what we're seeing today in our political discussion. I saw it, Jim Messina and others to this morning, try, trying to say, let's press the reset button. Let's go back to. I don't like. Well, go back. What are you talking about, right? And and what they're trying to do is disentangle Trumpism from the Republican Party. But when you look at the actual substance of not 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 the bombast, not not the P.T. Barnum politics that that Donald Trump represents, but when you look at the substance of of the policy, you know, this all out assault on government, the deconstruction of the administrative state. That's not that's not Trumpism. That's Republic. That's the Republican Party. Yeah. We've been hearing that since since Reagan, since Reagan ascended to office in 1980, the tax cuts for the wealthy. George W. Wallace called George H. W. Wallace called that voodoo economics. That's not new. When we hear talks about voter fraud, voter fraud was always the response of the Republican Party to Democrats' claims of voter suppression. Mm. That's not new. We can the, the stuff about law and order, that's not new. I mean, everything that we've seen, right, our stuff around judges, right? The way in which, you know, the only the difference has been in terms of pulling out of of, of NATO, kind of kind of the certain kinds of the internationalist policy. Uh, has been somewhat different, but in some ways you can trace that strand within the Republican Party and its various constituencies. So outside of the bombast, right? Outside of the fact that Donald uh, that Donald Trump doesn't know how to blow a whistle, he, you know how to whistle. He spits on people <laughs> instead of whistling, right? And he uses foghorns instead. Uh, the the substance is is continuous when we read him through. The lineage of Pat Buchanan, George Wallace, and Strom Thurmond, we make him a racist demagogue, mm. and we allow us to kind of put him over in the margins. But when you read him through Reagan, he becomes a central uh, f- feature of our politics that require a different kind of response, it seems, requires a different kind of response, it seems to me. Yeah. 
Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we are going to continue talking with Dr. Eddie Glaude, Jr., chair of the African American Studies Department at Princeton University, and we are going to continue to hear from you. we got so many people who want to participate in this conversation. Jasmine in Southwest Detroit, Alicia in Detroit, Terrence in Detroit, we will get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Welcome back to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest this hour is Dr. Eddie Glaude, Jr., chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University, the author of several books, including the new book, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America, and its urgent lessons for now. Uh, We're talking about uh, the moment right now in America, all of the things that have happened in the last eight or nine months uh, to remind us of the tremendous amount of work that still lies ahead. Uh, All of the things that remind us of the unfulfilled promise of America and Americanism. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter. Put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, I want to go to Alicia in Detroit to start this segment. Alicia, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi. Mm-hmm. I'm just calling because I really enjoy this conversation. I've um, been actually of, of um, Mr. Glad Jr., and I'm reading your book right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to say that in order for anything to heal, it has to be revealed. So this year is a year that everything that was hidden had to come out because if it didn't come out we never would have gotten to this place of finally everyone else realizing what we've been experiencing Mm. unlike your previous caller i'm 50 i'm not 40 and i saw over the years you know all the way from um rodney king we saw what happened and no one believed it we've been the canary in the coal mine forever no one believed it. Mm. And now you see so many people now finally waking up like, oh, yeah, this is a thing. This is an issue. There's history here. So I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact that finally there's revelation. Yeah. Yeah. Alicia, that's that's a great uh, that's a great way to think of all of the things that we've experienced this year. Uh, and, I, and I hope you're right that that there is a reveal taking place that that makes it more difficult, if not impossible, again, for people to not see, not see the issues, not see us, uh, the, the the victims of uh, of a lot of these issues. Uh, Dr. Glad, before I get you to respond to Alicia, I want to talk a little about, she mentioned, she mentioned Rodney King. Uh, and I can remember I was a, I was a senior in college when uh, when he was beaten by uh, the LAPD. And I remember that the, the, the column I wrote for the, the college newspaper uh, at that time talked about my experience growing up in the city of Detroit, 
and and driving a car uh, for the first time when I was 16 and the way in which uh, the police, the local police, the state police uh, would just pull me over randomly uh, and search the car or or so I remember once they took the seats out of the back of, of the car looking for for drugs or weapons. I, I they never said what they were looking for. I mean, uh, there was just this constant, um, you know, uh, tense interaction with police that that made me say, well, what's happening to Rodney King is especially brutal, but it's just not that surprising. And I can remember at the time. Uh, white friends and colleagues saying they ha- they had no idea that this kind of thing was normal. They thought Rodney King was an outlier and that uh, that was what made it outrageous. Uh, but fast forward now, uh, 30-some years later, uh, uh, George Floyd experiences the same thing. I mean, the, the exhaustion, I guess, that we feel at telling this story over and over and over again and not seeing significant change take place uh, is maybe uh, is maybe going to be relieved by what Alicia is is talking about but I don't know um, sometimes I'm skeptical yeah. well it's 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 reasonable skepticism right it's earned skepticism in some ways um, what Rodney King was 91 yeah by 91. the late by the late by the late nineties, we get the Rampart scandal, the mm-hmm. anti-gang unit in L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, terrorizing black communities, um, um, and we see this effort to reform uh, police suddenly lost in the midst of of law and order calls for law and order and 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 notions of community policing and training. Um, none of that changed. We know we have the black site in Chicago. Uh, we're People would just simply disappear. I mean, we could tell this story. We've been telling this story. We've been screaming from the top of our lungs that this was happening to us. And and then folks saw this eight minutes and 46 seconds. Mm-hmm. And so part of what I'm saying, uh, and I think Alicia is, 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 is right to say something has been revealed, but there's no guarantee. We have to keep fighting. We have to keep working hard. Uh, because people are going to, you know, it's like Mario Cuomo telling uh, Mario Cuomo, I'm dating myself, <laughs> Andrew Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of California, telling the protesters in New York, go home now. You've achieved what you wanted to achieve. And you just kind of say, oh, that's no. what they think. No, that's what they think. Yeah, we're not there. We're not there. No, nowhere near. Yeah. Uh, Alicia, uh, again, I really appreciate uh, the call and your comments. Let's go to Jasmine in Southwest Detroit. Jasmine, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you all for having me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was okay because today I wasn't going to put the radio on, and I just decided to put 101.9 in this conversation. <laughs> happened. Um, I'm a first-generation Mexican-American. Both my parents are undocumented immigrants, and hmm. Um, I am grateful enough to have gotten my bachelor's in political science and I'm getting my master's in public policy. I'm currently in the process of that, but I make that comment because I think the biggest issue that we're facing right now is that, um, there's a divide between brown and black communities Mm -hmm. and that's exactly what they're trying to do Pin brown and black folks against each other, thinking that we're the issue when the real issue 
is the only when the real issue is the systemic racism that is embedded in this country. And I'm starting to see that the younger folks are starting are realizing that and they're starting to come together. Many people either don't know or forget is that one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement is an Afro-Latina. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest issue is that we're not recognizing that although we might not have gone through the exact same thing, but a lot of Mexican um, were enslaved as well. And when the Spanish came to Mexico sure. to, to colonize us, we were also slaves. We were also raped. We were also taken from our culture, from our 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 belief system. And so we're not far from, like, sharing the same issues, sharing, mm. sharing the same generational curses. So, you know, uh, like YG said in his song, like SDT is, um, if it's time for us to come together, then let's begin. You yeah. know, and I'm, I'm I'm starting to believe that we're slowly coming to that point. So I just kind of wanted to make that comment that, yeah. and I see a lot of in a lot of immigrant communities that we're undocumented. You know, we came to this country with nothing, and they're U.S. citizens, and they don't take advantage of everything that they have. Look at them; they're on food stamps or this, this, and that. And that's the biggest issue that we're mm. trying to compare. Yeah. Our struggles against, and that's not the point. Jasmine, I'm I'm really glad you called and and raised this in the in the conversation, and and just the fact that your parents are, as you say, un- undocumented, is a reminder that you know the, the practice of otherism, the practice of exclusion uh, f- from American acceptance, is not exclusive to. To African Americans, that 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 you know, everybody's story, of course, is different and and individual, uh, but what they all have in common is discrimination, is the idea of of treating uh, a class of people differently because they uh, because they are different. Uh, Doctor Glaude, mm-hmm. I'd love to hear your reaction to to Jasmine's uh, comments. No, you know, when we think about. Um, the history of this country, it's not just simply a history that's, that can be told along the white-black axis, right? As we move uh, westward, you know, you know, think about this, you know, southwest Texas. Mm-hmm. Think about um, uh, what it means to begin to, to, to bring into view uh, different forms of, 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 of marginalization, of violence uh, directed at different different bodies. So we need to understand the complexity of, of, of the history of the country uh, in all in all of its shades and, 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 and dark hues in some ways. But I want to insist that it's not just in our suffering that, that solidarity can be found. Mm, mm. It's in our conception of justice. Right? So it's not just simply that, you know, we've all bared, many of us have, have borne the brunt uh, of the nation's hypocrisy. And that we have generations of our dead that are that are that are at our back. It's not just simply that. It's also the fact that we have a vision, a shared vision. At least we ought to. At least we can. A shared vision of a, what a more just world ought to be, yeah. where decency obtains, where Oscar Ramirez and his daughter aren't face up on the border, mm-hmm. where children aren't separated from their parents, right? Where uh, people aren't caged. Right and treated as animals, where folks don't have to hide in the shadows. Right, so I think if we if we understand that solidarity is not presupposed, solidarity is made, it's built, that we can begin to build those bridges that allow us to work together to build a more just America. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jasmine, I really appreciate uh, your call. And, and what a story, right? Uh, all the yeah, things that indeed. you're achieving uh, and, and the fact that your parents are still treated uh, as, as less than because of the way they, they came to this country. So uh, I'm really glad you called. Uh, let's go to Dennis in Dearborn. Dennis, welcome to the show. Hi, good day. Yeah. I see we're running short on time. I have so yes, much are. I would like to say, so, <laughs> but I'll cut it down. Uh, just my background, I read, a, read Rudolph Otto in, 19, uh, uh, in 1918. I read his writings, and it was the idea of the holy, complemented with a book in 1960s in college that says your God is too small. The, that set up a framework that I ask almost everybody's opinion, saying your opinion is too small, it could be better. Hmm. But okay, so jump to the to the 1980s to the Reagan, uh, uh, the dismantling of the uh, unions in the the Air Force yep. and the fairness doctrine, all of the things that kept driving people away from talking to each other, and now we have a parlor, a, a new Twitter's not good enough, it's too too <laughs> pushy. So now we got parlor, so we're being pushed apart even further, and um, uh, the. The socialism and, and uh, that's being talked about so much. I come from a Catholic tradition that Pope Leo the Thirteenth talked down socialism in 1890. The socialism that everybody's saying we don't want is part of our tradition saying we don't want it. It's mm. not there. It's not real. Mm. It's not there. Mm. Um, now, just jump, Dennis. We are running short, and I want to get <laughs> Doctor. I want to get a chance for Doctor Glad to to, to okay. respond. So. So I'm, I'm going to have him jump in here. We've only got about a minute left, but uh, yeah. go ahead, Dr. Glott. You know, I just stand in the tradition of the great Dorothy Day, <laughs> coming out of that Catholic tradition, you yeah, know. Yeah. And there is a sense in which if we keep the least of these right in front of us, yeah. the least of these as our model, as our measure, uh, then we will get about this work of building a more just world. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the end goal. The end goal wasn't to elect Biden-Harris. They were just a means to an end. The end goal is a more just America. So let's keep fighting for that. Yeah. Okay. Dr. Eddie Glaud, Jr., chair of the Department of African-American Studies at Princeton University. It was really, really great to have you with us today. I'm so glad you joined us. It's my pleasure. Okay. That is going to do it for us this week. We'll be back next week for Thanksgiving week, and people are reconsidering their plans to celebrate. We're going to talk on Monday with Washington Post Canada correspondent Amanda Coletta about that country's Thanksgiving last week, the resulting spike in cases that happened as a result, and the lessons we should be learning here on the other side of the Detroit River. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.